Our scripture reading today is from Acts 24, verses 14 through 15, and then we jump down to verse 24 through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. But I admit that I follow the way which they call a cult. I worship the God of our ancestors, and I firmly believe the Jewish law and everything written in the prophets. I have the same hope in God that these people have, that he will raise both the righteous and the unrighteous. A few days later, Felix came back with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Sending for Paul, they listened as he told them about faith in Christ Jesus. As he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming day of judgment, Felix became frightened. Go away for now, he replied. When it is more convenient, I'll call for you again. He also hoped that Paul would bribe him, so he sent for him quite often, and they talked with him. After two years went by, in this way, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And because Felix wanted to gain favor with the Jewish people, he left Paul in prison. Here the, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dana. Thanks, man. Well, good morning, Trinity. I really enjoyed that. Thank you, Dana. In the first service, he told the church that he was going to be doing a rocking song at the end because the youth pastor was preaching. So, um, so, but that was a new song. It was really good, wasn't it? Yes. I like the hymns too, but yeah, that was really good. If you've been here for a while, you know that we're in our study of Acts, and today we're looking at chapter 24. And those of you that have been following along, you know that Paul is now in Caesarea. Paul is going to be on trial before Governor Felix. And so to kind of give us some context, between chapter 21 to chapter 24 really only spans about 12 whole days. Last week, Jason covered chapter 23, where Paul was on trial before the tribune and the Jewish council uh, in Jerusalem. And at the end of the chapter, Paul is sent to Caesarea. Chapter 24 is a story of another trial. And this time, Paul is up against these high priests and some elders and a man named Tertullus. And the fact that they brought this man, Tertullus, is proof to us that these Jews weren't playing around anymore. There was a good chance that Tertullus wasn't even Jewish. But they brought him anyway. Tertullus was a professional. Your Bibles may call him a lawyer or attorney or orator or spokesman. But the point is that Tertullus was a specialist at what he did. He was the Johnny Cochran or the Robert Shapiro of the day. And they're about to turn him loose on Paul. And as we go through this story today, this chapter, I want you to be thinking of a courtroom scene, what this would look like. Here, this professional lawyer was about to bring accusations against Paul. What was it that Paul was going to say up against this guy 
It's almost like every trial has gotten bigger and bigger, right? And now this professional is here. What is Paul going to say to defend himself? Well, church, let's pray and ask the Lord to guide us through this chapter. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that what happened in the study comes out in the pulpit. Calm my heart, Father, and allow me to speak freely your truth. Father, I pray that our hearts are receptive to what you have to tell us. May we be open to your word this morning. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been in a situation where you were embarrassed by something someone was saying? I mean, they just start talking and the moment becomes so awkward, you just want to like slink into a corner somewhere. I I mean, I think we've all had these moments where we hear somebody talk and internally we're just screaming, just please stop talking. Please, like you're making this awkward. Please stop talking. Now, Wives, don't poke your husbands too hard because I'm sure that we're all guilty of this moment where we, we say things that we wish that we could just reach out and grab and take back. But in the opening moments of this courtroom scene, I think Paul, as he's listening to Tertullus address Felix, is feeling this kind of way. He's almost embarrassed by what comes out of this professional's mouth. Look at what Felix says or Tertullus says to Felix, this governor, in Acts 24, 2-4, it says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, I want you to hear it. I'm going to kind of give you a little, little accent here, because I kind of think he sound, sounded kind of whiny. He said, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness, hear us briefly. I mean, Tertullus is pouring it on thick for old Felix here. I mean, do you hear how sappy he is talking to this governor? And one of the strategies that he had was to butter up Felix before throwing down these accusations against Paul. And the only problem was that everyone in the room knew that everything this man was saying was a lie. It was false. And attorneys and lawyers get a bad rap, don't they, about the truth and and lying? And that's certainly not the case for every attorney, but it is the case here for Tertullus. Everything this man was saying, at this point, it was a lie. It wasn't true. The truth is that the Jews hated Tertullus. Felix. They did not like this man at all. One of the reasons is is because Felix was one of the most corrupt governors that they had ever had up to that point. He was known for his brutality. and There was very little peace during his time in office. He was also known for taking bribes. His rule was marked by cruelty and increased crime. The Greek historian Tacitus tells us that Felix was a tyrant. This is what he says. Tacitus says this. And Felix was in the practice of every kind of lust and cruelty. Now, get this. 
Felix was so brutal and incompetent that about two years after this trial that took place with Paul, he was recalled by Rome, which basically means that he was fired. And he was fired because he was being too brutal. Do you know who fired him? This is crazy. It was Nero. Nero fired him. The one that we know as being the ruthless one. The one that they called the beast. He was fired for being too brutal. Now, remember, Tertullus was talking to him at the very, very beginning. Oh, we've enjoyed so much peace. We've enjoyed so much of everything that you've given to us. And it just wasn't true. I think there's an important lesson for us to learn here. All of us in here would probably agree that lying is not good. And we probably shouldn't do it. But flattery. How do we feel about flattery. And flattery, I've got a definition up here on the screen that I want to show you. What we're the working definition that we're going to work off today is flattery is defined as excessive and insincere praise that is especially given in order to further one's own personal interests. So there is no question that what Tertullus was doing with Felix here was flattery. He was trying to flatter Felix. And the Bible is not silent about the sin of flattery. The Bible warns us of the dangers in both receiving flattery and giving flattery to someone. I'm going to look at a few scriptures just to kind of make sure that we're all on the same page on this. I want you to hear Proverbs 26, 24 through 28. It says, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. Whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victim and a flattering mouth works ruin. It seems like the Lord doesn't like flattery. Consider Psalms 12 and think of this as it pertains to what Tertullus was trying to do here. Psalms 12, 3-4 says, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, and I think this is what Tertullus would say in this moment, with our tongue we will prevail Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? My words will prevail. And think of this proverb as it pertains to our story. This is Proverbs 28, 23. Whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Now this will certainly prove true with the story with Paul and Tertullus. And I think examining flattery for us and our culture today and our world today is very important for us because we live in a world of insincerity, of manipulation of people and their emotions and their thoughts, and we use really nice, pretty words to pull it all off. It's all spin. In our culture today, we're just insincere people, and words are tools to be twisted, to get our own way. You know, relationships are hard enough, and especially relationships between a child and a parent. But flattery plays a huge role in a parenting relationship. 
Let me show you. Most of you in here are, are parents or you've been a child and you know kind of how it works and you might recognize this. Who remembers when you were a parent and your child kind of comes up to you real sweet, crawls up in your lap, huge smile, and they, they're loving you, maybe even pull your hair back a little bit, and they say, you really are the best mother in the world. You knew at that moment sweet manipulation was happening. You, you knew that there was a catch to this. You, you knew that they wanted something from you. And maybe you were the parent that came to your child and you kind of did the same thing and said, aren't you glad that you have the best mother in the world, the best father in the world? Yeah, I think your kids knew that there was a catch too. They knew that you were about to tell them to go mow the grass or something. Of course, these moments, they're jokes, but they kind of help us understand of how flattery works in relationships. And parents, we've got to be careful and we've got to watch out from, for the flattery that comes from our kids. One moment you'll be enjoying all the nice, sweet, beautiful things that they're saying about you. And then the next moment you're going to be swiping a credit card for something they don't need and you can't afford. <laughs> it's just the way it works. And parents, we also need to be careful of praising our own kids. There's a lot of research out there right now that is revealing what the Bible has said all along, that flattery, overly, flat, over, overly flattering someone and not speaking truth to them, it can be dangerous. Listen to the first paragraph of this news article that's talking about this research that I'm, I'm mentioning to you. And I don't have this on the screen, so listen up. It says, they are calling them the smug generation. These are the children of American baby, baby boomers who are inculcated by their parents with such a faith in their own brilliance that they are shattered later in life to discover that they're actually not much good at anything. It goes on to say, now, according to research by American psychologists, modern parents praise and flatter their children to such an extent that they believe that they are the cat's whiskers and destined to rise effortlessly to the top of every tree. Teenagers today think that they are bound to outshine their parents in all fields as workers, spouses, and as parents themselves, and so succumb to depression when it turns out that they're just fairly me mediocre at everything. Parents, there is a huge difference between flattery and encouraging and complimenting your children. Parents, you have got to encourage your children. You've got to be their biggest cheerleader. But above all, you've got to be truthful with them. Do we really tend to think of flattery as a sin? When was the last time we had thought about this and you heard this topic addressed in church or in a small group. Sometimes it feels like flattery can fall under the, the category of acceptable sin. In our fallen hearts, we don't really think of flattery as a sin because sadly, many times we're willing just to do whatever it takes and say whatever needs to be said in order to get our own way. Richard Stingle wrote a book that's called Too Kind, A Brief History of Flattery. Yes, that book exists, um, and it was so good that my dog decided to destroy it about six hours after I got it, so, um, so I will be getting another one, but his book is Too Kind, 
a brief history of flattery. I want you to hear what he says in this because I think it's great for this passage. He says, Flattery is not seen as bad or wrong because it is perceived as another tool for playing the game. Flattery is not bad because gamesmanship is not bad. Flattery is not bad because strategizing and calculating are not bad. And finally, flattery is not bad because there are no longer any consequences for outright falsehood, much less insincerity. Public lies are now treated as social misdemeanors, something between a parking ticket and drunk driving. Public liars are hardly even shamed anymore. And he goes on and he says this, another reason that flattery has lost its moral sting is that we no longer have an internal moral compass. And I believe he is right. I think he's very right. But the dangers of flattery is not just new to our generation. It's been around for a long, long time. But I think one of the reasons we need to consider this is our culture today has a major issue with truth. And if we're not careful, we'll buy into the lie as well that the end justifies the means. In our world today, facts are not as important as how we make people feel. And I know that you recognize this in our culture. I know that you feel, you understand what I'm saying here. Facts are not as important as the feelings and emotions that someone has. And church, even though that we live in a world where facts don't seem to matter, guys, they matter to God. Truth matters to God. And in a second, we'll see that Paul didn't concern himself with flattering Felix at all. He was stuck in the facts about his case. He was not concerned about winning over Felix. He was not trying to please this man or anybody else. He was not going to bend his story to give him an an angle or an edge. Paul was concerned with the truth. And the Bible warns us against flattery because it knows that sometimes our sinful hearts are more concerned about pleasing people than speaking the truth. And the Bible warns us against flattery because it knows that our sinful hearts, we would rather listen to wonderful, easy-to-hear things that are said about us rather than hard truth. And church, your best friend is the one who tells you the most truth. Your best friend is the one who tells you the most truth. And I say this to young people all the time. Flattery is easy. Truth is hard. There's a lot of truth in this Yiddish proverb that says, flattery makes friends and truth makes enemies. Church, let us be a people committed to truth. With any situation that we're in, may we be known for truth-telling, whether it's in business or politics or sports, relationships, and even storytelling, and yes, even sharing the gospel. Let us be more concerned about how God sees us in the moment than being impressive before men. I want you to see how Paul handles himself here. Tertullus lays down three accusations against Paul, but there's really nothing new. We've seen all this before. So Acts 24, 5 through 8 says, For we have found, and this is Tertullus speaking, for we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. 
By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Now, if you see Tertullus here, he's very confident with the accusations that he just threw down. One, Tertullus said that he was a plague. Paul was a plague and stirred up riots all over the world. Two, Tertullus accused Paul of being a ringleader of the Christians. And third, Tertullus told Felix that Paul was trying to profane the temple. He was trying to bring impurity upon it. So when all this was said, Paul began to speak. Felix just looked at him and nodded, and it was his turn to go. I want you to hear what Paul said, and I want you to see if you can recognize any flattery as he's addressing Felix. 24.10 says, Knowing that you have been For many years you have been a judge over this nation. I cheerfully make my defense. There was no flattery right here. All Paul was doing was recognizing that he had been a judge in this area for a long time. But it's interesting to note that Paul said here that he would cheerfully make his defense. And I think Paul would cheerfully and joyfully make his defense because there was nothing for him to fear from this. All the facts about these accusations, they were all on his side. You can almost see a smirk on Paul's face as it's his turn to speak. He's like, this is, this is all you've got? Like, you're the professional? Like, th- really? Paul directly spoke about every one of these accusations. In Acts 24, 11 through 13, Paul addresses the accusation of stirring up riots among the Jews. Now, this accusation was very serious. It was the one that carried the biggest consequences. Because if it was true, Paul would probably be tried and charged with sedition and execution probably would happen pretty quick. Rome maintained peace by the sword. But Paul here was just saying, guys, this just isn't true. I wasn't stirring up any crowd inside the temple or outside the temple. They can't prove anything. And they couldn't. Now, Paul addressed the second charge of being the ringleader of all the Christians in Acts 24, 14 through 16. And many commentaries on this passage right here, they they see that Paul confesses to this charge, that he is the ringleader. And I'm not convinced that this is what Paul is doing here. Now, Paul doesn't outright deny, I'm not the ringleader. He does something unique. He does something very strange that he redirects them. And I want you to see this. He redirects them to the God of the Scriptures. He confesses, but he confesses to be a worshiper of the one true God. So in verse 14, Paul begins his defense of this accusation with the words. He says this, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written by the prophets. And so I think in this moment, what Paul is actually saying here, he's saying something like this, guys, hold on, hold on. I am I'm not the ringleader of anything. This Christianity, this, this thing that you're accusing me of, it's been around a whole lot longer than me. I worship the God of our fathers. I worship Him. And I follow the, the books that He and his, his prophets have written. And because of this God and these prophets and what they have written, I believe in the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. You see, me and these Jews that are accusing me, we actually don't disagree on this. I think at this point, Tertullus was probably packing up his notes and putting them in his briefcase. 
He knew it was over. I mean, what an answer. Church, he was saying, I'm not the ringleader. I'm not him. Let this be a reminder to us that we don't have a ringleader. We don't have a ringleader. We worship the God of our fathers. We follow him and his word alone. Christianity is older than us. It is older than these chairs that you're sitting in. It's older than this church. It's older than Pastor Jeff, Jason, and me combined. Our ringleader has never been replaced. Our ringleader is the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. And we need to be reminded of this today. With all the different styles of churches out there and all the different opinions on how things ought to be done in church, we need to remind ourselves that we are not the designers of Christianity. We are not the ringleaders of anything. We are to be obedient to ancient texts that were written by an eternal God. And our hope for our churches today is not in the leadership abilities of any man, but the hope for our churches today is that we would surrender ourselves to both the God of this book and the book of this God. None of us in here are the ringleaders of anything. That title was given to the man who went on the cross, and we follow him. The third accusation Paul tried to defile the temple. Well, guys, this couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, in verse 17, Paul tells them that he actually came to Jerusalem to bring alms and offerings to his people. He argued that this whole riot started in Jerusalem. He was being purified in the temple. There was no crowd around him. There was no one around him. He came as a humanitarian effort to bring goods and gifts and money to his people. But the crowd that did show up to drag him out of the temple, these were Jews from Asia. And look at how Paul destroyed this argument right here. In Acts 24, 18-19, and this is the last half of verse 18, Paul starts talking about these Jews in Asia, but he stops himself. He says, but some of the Jews in Asia, well, you know, they really ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me? He was telling them, they're not here. None of the eyewitnesses of this situation that he was being accused of were there. And according to Roman law, in common sense, Paul had the right to face his accusers. And it was at this point that Felix says, all right, I've had enough. All right, he ended, he ended the trial, and he threw Paul in custody for two years. Two years without justice. Now, his time in the jail in Caesarea, he was given a lot of leniency. His friends could come and take care of his needs, but he was still in prison. And Felix left him in prison because we're told he wanted to do a favor for the Jews. Now, very little is told to us about what happened in his time in Caesarea. There's a chance that he could have written uh, Philippians during this time. Small chance, but he could have done that. We don't know a whole lot about this time. But what we do know is that Felix and Paul had many conversations over the years. It says that Felix would send for him often so that they could talk. Now, why would Felix want to talk with Paul. I mean, wouldn't Felix rather spend his time with Tertullus, 
the flattering lawyer that would tell him everything that he wanted to hear. In all the rest of the Bible, Tertullus is never mentioned again. He never comes up again. But Paul, Felix could not get enough of Paul. Why do you suppose that is? Why do you think that this governor would want to spend his time talking with Paul on a regular basis? We remember that proverb from earlier we read, Proverbs 28, 23, that says, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. Guys, that verse is so true and it is so hard because none of us want to have the job of rebuking or correcting, right? None of us want to have that job. But working with teenagers, I can tell you firsthand that that verse is very, very true. Teenagers know when you're being insincere. They know it. They can see right through it. And our young people today are drawn to to adults that are truthful with them, even when that truth hurts. They instinctively know when people are being real with them. And teenagers often know who loves them the most by who is willing to have these difficult conversations with them. And I think this can be said not only of teenagers, but us as adults as well. We know who loves us the most because who is willing to have this awkward, difficult conversation with me? I want you to think on this for a second. You know, even though we live in a world that doesn't really like truth, it hungers for it. And this world doesn't like difficult conversations about truth, but it will come back for more and more. This is what happened here. Now, isn't it true that us married people will fight over the dumbest things in the entire world? And we just invent things to fight about. I mean, Kristen and I, we never fight. Isn't that right, baby? Like, <laughs> just kidding. Sure we do. We're like everybody else. We have our moments. Let me give you some insight of some things that happen in our house. Probably about five times a week, she loves this, and she hasn't even heard this. Probably about five times a week, I will find myself calling out to her and saying things like, Hey, honey, where, where's, where's the ketchup? Or, hey, honey, where's the car charger? Or, hey, honey, where's the keys? Where's the remote? And my wife will almost always respond back with a very clear answer. She'll always say, well, they're on the table. Or they're in the pantry on the second shelf to the right. Or, I love this answer, they're exactly where you left them. Yeah. Yeah. This always becomes so frustrating because I will have looked exactly where she told me. And I can't find them at all. And our exchange will go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then she'll finally just get tired of yelling or tired of dealing with me, and she'll come and find it exactly where she told me it was, and it's the most frustrating thing ever for me and for her. But without fail, this item that I'm looking for is right out in the open. It's always in plain sight where I should be able to see it. I hear this goes on in other marriages, too. I hear there's a thing called, um, uh, what is it, husband vision? Like, they just can't see anything? But sometimes things are hidden in just plain sight for us. Every time I teach a passage of the Bible, 
the first thing that I look for inside of the text is what is the major theme? What's the major point that this author is trying to get across to me? So job number one is what is the purpose of the text? And if I'm being honest, this passage, chapter 24, was giving me a little difficulty because it's a lot of the same stuff, right? It's another trial. What was I going to learn from this passage, from chapter 23? Every word of God is precious. And yes, this is church history. And I love church history. And so it's very, very important for us to know. But it's just another trial of Paul being on, or another story of Paul being on trial, right? A lot of the same stuff here. And just like that bottle of ketchup that was staring me right in the face, the main point of this passage was staring me in the face too. And I just needed some help finding it. But this time, it wasn't my wife that came to the rescue. It was the president of the Ukrainian Baptist Seminary. He was remarking on the church in Ukraine. And this is what he said, and I want you to hear this. The church will go underground. We had that under the Soviet Union. The church did not forget what it means to be persecuted. We will rearrange, reorganize, and do what we always do. Preach the gospel. And do what we always do. Preach the gospel. Church, I believe the main point of this passage is to remind us again and again that preaching the gospel over and over and over and over is exactly what God desires from us. In a prison cell in Caesarea or war-torn Ukraine and here in peaceful America, in the good times and in the bad, our message is to never change. I was overlooking this main point all along. The main point here is the gospel. And the situation for the Ukrainian church right now is far from ideal. But what are they spending their time on? Preaching the gospel. The situation for Paul during these two years was far from ideal. But how did Paul spend his time preaching the gospel? And verse 24 tells us, after a few days passed, Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, sent for Paul and heard Paul talk about faith in Christ Jesus. And I want you to hear in verse 25, I want you to hear like what was going on in these conversations. Verse 25 says, And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control, And the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Look at what Paul was doing during these conversations. He reasoned with him, which in our culture is difficult, right? He taught him about righteousness. This this man who knew Jewish law, he knew God. Could you imagine that conversation with Paul about righteousness? He talked to him about self-control. He talked to him about the coming judgment. And if Tacitus, the Greek historian, was right, Felix was that he was given over to all kinds of lust and immorality, I bet this was an intense conversation, right? Well, Paul, or excuse me, Luke, the author of Acts, actually tells us that it was an intense conversation. In the English Standard Version, verse 25, which is the version that I read to you just a second ago, it says that Felix became alarmed. 
But I don't think that the ESV's rendering of this word alarmed captures exactly what's going on here. Yes, Felix was alarmed, but he was afraid. He shook with terror over the things that Paul told him. If you have King James in front of you, it says that Felix trembled. The Greek word here is the word that we get phobia from. He was afraid. I want you to let this sink in for just a second. The gospel, it terrified Felix. Now, why why would good news scare someone? Why would good news make somebody tremble? Especially this governor. I mean, he's got it, right? Church, listen, because the gospel is always bad news before it is good news. I've heard pastors say that you must get a man lost before you can get him saved. A man must be convinced of his need. Excuse me, a man must be convinced of his sin before he can be convinced of his need for a Savior. In Romans 6.23, it's one of those verses that just encapsulates the whole gist of the gospel. And I want you to see how it says it here. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In this verse, you have the bad news and then the good news. And the bad news is, for the wages of sin is death. And the truth right here is that I have earned death because of my sin. I have sinned against a holy and righteous God. God has the right and authority to judge me. I have broken His law, and I am guilty, and judgment is coming soon. That's the bad news. The good news is in the later half of this verse. God offers me forgiveness and eternal life through Christ. Instead of judgment, I get mercy. Instead of wrath, I get grace. Instead of death, I get life. I can be forgiven, and in Christ, I can be a new creation. If someone doesn't understand the bad news... The grace offered to him will not be that amazing, will it? Remember the song? Grace only becomes amazing when it saves wretches like us. Charles Spurgeon said, The roaring thunder of the law and the fear of the terror of judgment are both used to bring us to Christ. But the final victory culminating in our salvation is won through God's loving kindness. Church, over the last hundred years, church in America has just changed. It's gone through a lot of changing. Church just looks different today than it did a hundred years ago, so I've been told. It wasn't around back then. But much of what was, has changed was needed change. There were things that needed to be addressed. But in those years, we've seen the message of the church shift And the message went from one of being overly harsh and legalistic and very hard to now it seems that the church in America is aiming at making the gospel palatable for lost people and gentle on the sinner. We've tried to take the sting out of the gospel. And we're so afraid to offend. And we're so afraid of using words that might hurt. And 
Trinity, our world is becoming more and more sensitive to unpleasant and uncomfortable words. We've got to figure this out. Many college campuses today have built safe spaces to ensure students that they can escape from words or conversations that make them feel uncomfortable. Church, the gospel is uncomfortable. The gospel is uncomfortable. Conversations about sin and judgment and hell, these are very difficult to have. But we are called to have them. Church, do not be afraid of sounding too Christian. Do not be afraid of using the words that the Bible uses. We are, after all, Christians. And we are, after all, people of this book. And this book, after all, it says that it is perfect at reviving the soul. May we use it. Trinity, hear me out on this. One of the biggest problems in the churches in America is that today we want so badly to be liked by the world. We, we have wanted that so bad that we have, at times, tried to soften the gospel. May that never be said of us. May we, like Paul, preach the undiluted truth to everyone. I want you to hear what Paul says to the Corinthian church and how, how, his whole vision of how he came to them. Listen to this. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. It says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. As I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith may not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Church, you remember Tertullus at the beginning of this story? This man was a professional. He spoke eloquently. He had a game plan for what he wanted to do. He spoke with words that were intended to impress his audience. His grammar was per perfect. His pronunciations were perfect. He had tactics and tricks. Tertullus had an arsenal of strategies that could win over any man. He knew that by the power of his words, he could likely get his way. He tried his best to be liked by Felix. Paul simply had the message of truth. Tertullus knew that by the power of his words, he could win the day. Paul knew that it was only God's words that had any power. Tertullus had faith in his abilities. And Paul had faith in the gospel of Jesus alone. Church, God is not calling us to be eloquent or polished in our delivery. He is calling you to simply proclaim the gospel truth. And guess what? He'll do the rest. We speak the truth, He will do the rest. And church, do we really think that we can be faithful in proclaiming the gospel message and have people like us all the time? Sometimes we've got to ask ourselves, am I more concerned about this person hearing the truth or am I more concerned about my status with them? As Vody Balcom used to say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. <laughs> am I more concerned about this person hearing truth? Or am I more concerned about my status before them?
Are you willing to risk not being liked in order to share the gospel? The gospel does not need our help. Church, I pray that we never feel like we need to move away from the gospel or improve on the gospel in some way. I pray we never find ourselves drifting from this message. Our job is not to be acute, but consistent. Our job is not to be funny, but faithful. Our job is not to be attractive, but accurate. Church, does the most powerful lion in the kingdom need help defending itself? No. You let it loose and let it do what it does. You simply preach the word. And Trinity, just like Paul did here, I pray that we go and share what is inside of this book because it alone is perfect at reviving the soul. Let us not be ashamed of this gospel message. Let us not soften it or try and alter it in any way. Let us use the words that it uses. It is perfect just the way that it is. I know it's hard. I know that we find ourselves sometimes saying, well, I, I can't say that. Or, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't, you know, somebody's not ready for this. And sometimes that's accurate. But we as Christians need to check our hearts. We cannot be ashamed of this message if we say that it is the message that saves souls. Are we willing to share it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Acts 24. I pray that through it we have seen that your gospel is the consistent thing that we need to preach and proclaim. Your gospel is what carries us throughout this world. Father, they don't need to hear, the world, the lost world does not need to hear our wisdom because our wisdom fails. They need to hear your word. They need to hear your truth. Father, I pray that we're a people that trust in your word, that we trust that it is perfect. and We don't shy away, but we speak truth and love. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.